Hello, listeners, and uh, welcome to, uh, I think this will be episode 16.5, or we, are we in the point fives? Yeah, I think we're in the point fives. We're in the point fives this time, yes. Okay, and this is revision zero of uh, the Square Waves FM podcast. Um, I am one of your happy hosts, Chris, and with me today, as always, is... Also a happy host. I'm Brian. Hi, guys. Hi, everybody. Um, this week, uh, we, we meant to get this to, to this uh, last week, or maybe the week before. Um, um, I, I, I thought of something, man. Um, we, we always call it listener feedback, and it never quite feels right. It always, feedback always sounds like the, I don't know, it sounds like we, we've submitted like a paper out for review, and we're getting back, you know, our, our kind reviewers' comments and stuff. And I realized like, the way our show functions, which is kind of funny, is it's actually almost more like a bulletin board system. Um, yeah, it is. Isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah, everyone posts kind of messages, and 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 we respond to the messages, and then those messages get responded to, and we ended up getting like two or three deep in a thread at some point. Yeah, we should start swearing at our listeners and trolling them and calling them Nazis and stuff. It'll really be like message, <laughs> message bases then. <laughs> yeah, we got to bring you guys back to 1991. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when life was good. Um, yeah, so I'm 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 officially renaming our, our our feedback section the bulletin board, or maybe the wall. Do you remember when it was used to be called the wall? The wall. You could just. Oh, I don't know. Not all boards had the support for it. Anybody oh, who's it's like never the, been on PDF. Is that like when, the first time you log in and you had an opportunity to say a one-liner? Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, you could put in a one-liner, and sure. uh, <laughs> of course, our wall is like you know allows for six to twenty-five minute. Uh, one-liners, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, no, that's cool. Yeah. I'm all for it, man. Yeah, me too. I, uh, I, I, love, I love hearing... I honestly just love hearing people's voices. Um, um, I, I like getting email feedback, too, but it's great hearing people's voices. You realize this uh, community of really weird folks that like really weird games and really weird computer techno jargon um, have great voices, and uh, everyone's very, very unique, and I love that we have this massive... Uh, 15-person international listenership. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I know. I don't care how many we have, the few that we have. I'm, I love you guys to pieces. It's great to hear from you, and it's great to be heard. Yeah. So um, I, I, you have you have the control over the horizontal and the vertical. So um, <laughs> uh, who should we listen to or respond to first? All right. Yeah, so sure, the, the, the purpose of our of our uh, little point five episode here, 16.5, I just checked, was uh, to catch up on the uh, awesome wall one-liner postings that you've all been uh, sending us. So we've got three voicemails and a two-part email that we want to just quickly oh, address. Insane. And this is, uh, yeah, we're really sorry for not getting to this last week. I misconfigured my laptop in a stupid way. So uh, Yeah, and, and it was action. actually more my fault because we would have had an opportunity at the end, but uh, I went and saw Mad Max, which was absolutely not worth going to. So, um, oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, uh, <laughs> sorry, Bram, I cut us off an hour early to go see a terrible movie. Um, that's okay. He'll be back. <laughs> all right. All so, right. Well, I've got, uh, I've got, uh, this, uh, seven minute epic about Commodore 64 from our dearest of dear friends, uh, trolls. So, oh, uh, I why can't don't wait. I start us off with that? Yeah. We were begging him for more uh, information about, uh, his uh, C64 uh, mishap. Yes, I so. needed closure on the disaster, so let's That's hear right. it. All right, let's take it away, Mr. Trolls. Hey, Squares. It's uh, me, the uh, Space Quest historian thingy. Um, 
thanks for playing my voicemail on the uh, last episode. Uh, sorry for the uh, technology borking up on you there. Um, I realized that uh, Brian uh, somehow fished out the uh, complete recording of my voicemail and stuck that in the episode. So you probably already know how the story ends. Uh, but the uh, briefly, the story goes that, uh, you know, I fucked up my C64 by plugging in the uh, wrong uh, power outlet in the wrong connector and... Um, basically fried the entire circuit board. So I had to walk down sheepishly and tell my dad that I had fucked up the uh, Commodore 64 that he had so graciously gotten for me. And, you know, he looked at me with the kind of uh, disapproving look that you normally reserved for when a pet disbehaves. And, uh, you know, there was no store to go back and return it to because uh, he had gotten that C64 off a friend of his, probably a work colleague or something, which is why it came with a box of pirated uh, uh, games. Uh, and yes, you're absolutely right. C64 people were notorious pirates. Um, and actually, um, you know, we did have a modem for our Commodore 64, but I'm pretty sure that uh, most of the games that we got were just by, you know, going over to friends' houses and copying discs. Uh, because as, as you say, uh, the copy protection on games for the Commodore 64 wasn't really that good. I mean, there, there were there were some inventive ideas. You know, uh, the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game, for example, had you know this little this little hole at the top of the floppy disk that uh, you're supposed to cut out. That makes the disk writable, or or is that the other way around? Like, if it's if it's all oh, right, if it's if if the, if the little tab is in there, that means it's writable. If you take the tab out, that makes the disc non-writable. And uh, so the uh, first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game had this, uh, you know, the uh, the tab was was out and you couldn't write on it, and you couldn't copy it, and and such. It was it was really weird. Um, but anyway, uh, digressing junior high here. Um, basically, there was no uh, no way out. Um, I had basically fucked up this uh, this Commodore sixty four, and and now we were back to one C sixty four in the household. Uh, but it was it was okay because not not long after that we uh, got our first three eighty six, and then I would start monopolizing that machine. And uh, you know, my dad got to play with the C sixty four for uh, you know about uh, thirty or. 40 minutes, and then he would start bitching about me monopolizing the 386 instead. So, uh, proud moment for me, that one. Uh, but basically, you know, no uh, no new C64 for me. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, you're right about, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the load command for the Commodore 64. This this was a, this was a weird thing because you know as, as a kid, especially as, as a little kid, you kind of believe any you know magic bullshit that someone tells you, and um, for the longest time, when we had our, our C64, we had uh, you know a uh, a tape deck, and we would you know load games uh, off the uh, off the tape deck, and eventually. My dad got us a, uh, a disk drive, which is exactly as Chris described, uh, like a huge hulking beast of a, uh, a disk drive that was, uh, you know, it, it paralleled the size of of the actual C64 itself, and it weighed about twice as much. And um, uh, to load a game onto the C64, you would type in load, um, you would type in load, and you would you would type in the uh, uh, quotation marks. And then you would type in the uh, uh, name of the file that you wanted to load, or if you just wanted to load the first thing that was on the disk, you would just type in an asterisk. And then you would close the quotation marks, and then you would type in comma, and then whatever drive you wanted to access. Uh, I'm not sure about the, uh, you know, if, if if this was sort of a peak uh, command, like a, like a, po- in my mind, in my childish mind, what what you typed the the number you typed after the comma was the uh, uh, the drive that you wanted to access. So if you typed in comma eight, that was the disk drive port, I guess. 
if you type in comma one, that was the tape deck. That would instruct the C64 to go seek on the tape deck. Um, so if you type in load, uh, uh, loads, uh, uh, asterisk, uh, comma eight, uh, forgetting the quotation marks there, uh, load, uh, quotation marks, asterisk, quotation mark, closed, comma eight, that would tell it to go and load the first thing that it found on the floppy drive. Now, this is where the magic part comes in. I have no idea why, but if you typed in load, quotation mark, asterisk, close quotation mark, comma eight for disk drive, comma one, in my magic mind, it, it would somehow load the disk drive faster. And I have no idea why, but uh, every time I see someone on YouTube load a C64 game, they always type comma eight, comma one, which in my mind means comma disk drive, comma tape deck. Um, and I have no idea why this makes the game load faster. I remember there were some games that uh, specifically instructed you to do this, and there were some games that just didn't care. If you loaded uh, like um, like uh, um, um, basic files that you had uh, done on your own, you would only need to type in comma eight because typing in comma eight comma one would somehow compress the memory of it. I don't know. Um, this is just uh, one of the quirks of the Commodore 64 that I never really figured out. So I've always stuck with this, you know, magic thing in my mind. If I type in comma eight comma one, it makes the game load faster, except if it's one of those basic files that you've created yourself, in which case you will fuck up everything. Um, so that's uh, basically, um, all I have to clarify on that point. Um, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, piracy on the Commodore 64, that was an interesting time for us. It had nothing to do with modems. It had, it, you know, it, we were just uh, go over to a friend's house and copy their uh, uh, discs because they would have two disc drives and we'd just come home with this big box of, of shit to, to, to wade through. Um, but yeah, I was a kid. It was a long time ago. Can't even remember. But uh, we did actually have a, uh, a modem for our Commodore 64. And I think I told this when I was a guest on, on, on your show a, a while back. We actually did get the Commodore 64 and the 386 to very, very briefly talk to each other. Um, I have no idea how my dad pulled that off, but uh, he had... Um, uh, a, f a 56 uh, bow modem uh, for the 386 and he had <clears throat> a 28 bow modem for the Commodore 64 and for a very very brief <clears throat> moment in time he would actually manage to connect the two together and you could uh, type shit on the 386 and it would pop up on the C64's screen and it would do this for about 30 seconds and then the Commodore 64 would crash. I have no idea how we pulled that off. It just looked like fucking magic, uh, as anything did back in those days. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, keep up the good work. Uh, thanks for all your uh, hours of enjoyment. Uh, and uh, yeah, stay squared. Oh, thank you so much, Trolls. What a, that was a really informative and fun voicemail. Now, um, I have to admit, while I was listening to him talk about the comma 8 and comma one stuff, yeah. I was ready to call bullshit on this, or at least to uh, to uh, question this, because me as a BBS, you, both of us as BBS users, eight and one are like the, those mean to me like eight bits and one stop bit, or one uh, checksum bit or something like that. Um, but yeah. I was just looking up on Wikipedia while he was talking, and Trolls is absolutely right about uh, the eight and the one corresponding to either a floppy device or a uh, uh, or a disk device. So I think one means, one means uh, the uh, uh, 
the the uh, sorry, I meant the tape device. Yeah, one is tape and one is uh, one is tape and eight is one is tape and eight floppy. is the disk drive. And then you can specify numbers between eight and fifteen for a whole bunch. That's right. Yeah, for a whole bunch of other additional devices. So that's interesting on uh, on its own. Um, what I also verified here is that, you know, Trolls, what a cool comment about saying the comma one, he always felt like it goes faster. So they mentioned this in Wikipedia as well. I'm sorry, this is c64wiki.com, c64-wiki.com. Um, they say that if you suffix your command with comma zero, then yep. the program will be loaded to the start of basic memory. However, if you oh. suffix it with comma one, it will be loaded to the absolute uh, the absolute location defined by the two, the first two bytes in the binary file for machine language programs. I guess that means assembly. Yes. So yes. that would explain why, if it's putting it into a specific memory address, then I guess that's that it knows exactly where to look instead of having to seek for it or something. I don't know. Uh, I don't know I think, enough about this stuff. I think I think if I remember correctly, in Trolls or anybody else who had a Commodore sixty four, um, I got a C sixty four kind of later in life. Um, and yeah, it's very true that it's C sixty four was cool because you could daisy chain um, that all of the disk drives, all of the accessories were built so that you had, let's say, an input um, data cable and an output data cable. So you could connect, you know, your drive directly to the Commodore sixty four, but on the drive you could daisy chain on additional devices. Um, so anything after eight, I don't know what one through eight, I don't know what two through seven were used for, to be honest. It doesn't specify I, in here. Maybe those were like system devices or something internal. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm kind of suspecting, because there was a, like a lot of, there was like not a SCSI port, but there was there were some additional kind of a ports on the back of the Commodore 64 that no one ever used. Um, uh, and then you could daisy chain on stuff after eight. And I remember um, I got actually... Anybody wants to look this up, this thing's totally insane. I don't remember the brand. I had a 5-megabyte hard drive for the Commodore 64, and the thing is massive. It weighs about 25 pounds. Wow. And <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's like three times the size of a Commodore 1541 disk drive. If anybody is familiar with that disk drive, three times the size of that is gigantic. Um, it's like an AT-class computer. Um, and I bet it's double the price of the computer itself. I think it was actually more like 10 to 15 times the price, Holy if sense. I remember correctly. You're probably I think, right. I think the Commodore 64 was 300 bucks in Canada, yeah. and I believe that this, this drive, when it came out, was two to $3,000. Oh, my gosh. So maybe awesome. maybe five to 10 times the price. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I daisy-chained a bunch of devices on, and sure enough, you can just address the hard drive, and it's... And it just sees it as a disk drive, and you can write to it. It's ungodly slow. Um, it's just as slow as writing to a stupid disk drive. Um, but yeah, the comma a comma one thing. The comma one thing is, um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it actually is the fact that if you don't specify comma one, it actually does not load the entire uh, program into memory. Period. It'll actually ah. keep accessing the disk to. Uh, keep streaming it to your to memory on on call, right? Hmm. So, if the if the executable is uh, the appropriate size, so if it's under who knows 52 kilobytes or whatever whatever free um, uh, RAM is left on the Commodore 64 after loading Basic into ROM. Oh no, it's got Basic on ROM, so I think you've got yeah. the whole 65,000. Um, yeah, it. Uh, it um, will load it all completely, so it's almost like the equivalent of using uh, using the game as a RAM disk. Um, mm -hmm. So, 
I think it, loading probably takes the same amount of time, but I think the big advantage is you're not getting uh, disc accesses in the middle of the game. Makes sense. I think. I, I, I could be completely wrong about that, but I remember um, in the Prince of Persia Diaries, Jordan Mechner is actually uh, lamenting this issue, and he says one of his tasks is to make sure that um, Prince of Persia does not require any swaps. <laughs> uh, of course. Yeah, so he's trying to squeeze everything down into... Uh, into the smallest possible size so we can load, load everything directly into RAM so you're not loading levels or loading parts of a... Oh, you know what it was? He didn't want to load, uh, load pull off the disk from screen to screen. He wanted the whole level to load into RAM. Mm-hmm. That so is anyway, really that neat. Was, that was my memory of it. Um, um, unlike DOS, where I think in DOS, basically with the largest executable program size, you basically load the entire bloody game into memory and that's it. I guess so. I mean, were those... Uh, were those like low density floppies then at like three three twenty or three sixty kilobytes? Uh, or I'm wondering. Mm. Yeah, like I think the original ones, like the booters, um, are three sixty k. And I, oh, this is like a crazy technical question. I hope Anatoly, um, you might be able to get back to us on this. But does anybody know if booters load everything into memory or if they actually do disk accesses? Uh, that's a good question. My guess is that it probably has some kind of a runtime environment that it loads into yeah. memory and the rest it kind of loads off of the disk as it needs it. That's my that's my guess. But it did have be... 640K of RAM to play with, which is double the size of a floppy. I wonder. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm kind of thinking. I'm thinking you could probably get away with loading everything into memory. So it might be. Huh. That's really neat. And I'm, uh, what you've mentioned about uh, perhaps the um, about the uh, hard drive taking as long as a floppy drive to load, I'm wondering if they might use the same like file system or something like that. I don't think it would be like oh, that. It, it, oh, 16. that was actually just a limitation of the Commodore 64's uh, data port. Oh, it was the bus. Um, yeah, the bus actually was limited, I want to say, to around uh, like 300 baud. Um, right. Like, like painfully, like, like terrible modem speed. I think it was around 300 baud, and you actually needed something called a fast loader cartridge, um, ah. which kind of bypassed. Uh, I think it was a, it, something to do with the data bus. It was it was constantly accessing something, which slowed it right down. So, if you had a thing called a fast load cartridge, please troll. Tell me if you had a fast load. I would love to know if anybody else had a fast load too. Um, it was this extra cartridge you you jammed into the <laughs> the game port on the Commodore 64, and it would like go from 300 baud to like I don't know, like the equivalent of a 14.4. So like pulling it off at almost regular IBM PC floppy speeds. So yeah, the, yeah uh, the load times were kind of painful on the Commodore 64, as I remember. Oh, they were horrific. Um, I want to say it was about to uh, for the first time. ten to 15, ten to fifteen minutes for a for a large game in my experience. Really? Yeah, they were they were horrific. I remember it being I don't know maybe I never played a large game. I remember it being like a good one or two or three minutes or so to load up the the games that I played. Yeah, this is probably a case of my my imagination uh, <laughs> being making things worse than they were. But I remember. Uh, at the time, I was so used to having a 386, 486 that sure. I couldn't believe, you know, I remember that when we go over my friend James's house, because James had this uh, Commodore 64, he would um, start loading, I think the game was called The Impossible Mission, and yeah. which is an awesome, awesome game. Destroy him, my robots. Yeah, and he'd was be like, okay, one? let's go outside and play. And... Um, so we'd go and chase his cows or chase his horses around in the field for like, you know, 10, 15 minutes and come back, and the game would just be finishing loading. <laughs> oh, chasing horses, wow. Yeah, I, pretty, I, remember, I remember hating that game. 
Wasn't that oh, a really, really infuriating game? I don't know. I forget what it was that I hated. It was about. insanely so difficult. I, I, yeah. Wasn't the idea of the game that you had to like ride these elevators uh, up and down? It was kind of like an early precursor to Flashback. Yeah, and it was like the whole world was like a great big maze or something. Yes. I, I vaguely remember. Yeah, it was insanely difficult. I remember the animation was really good, though. That's right. And am I remembering right that this was the one that had like little bits of synthesized speech? Yes, that's exactly yeah. it. Um, wow, well, they had like a, oh, they had like a phrase or a word that they I, I heard all the time. Crap, I can't remember. Stay, stay um, forever, or something like that. Was yeah, that yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, that's awesome, trolls. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I, I um, I'm really glad that you mentioned the. Uh, the load command because I completely forgot the distinction between loading into basic and loading into uh, loading into um, uh, sorry. So that's really weird now that I think about it. So that means that the Commodore 64 distinguished between loading programs into different memory addresses based on the kinds of programs they were. I guess so. Or I guess it just assumed that the program does not specify the particular memory addresses unless you yeah. tell it to look for them. That's like pretty hardcore. It is hardcore. <laughs> I like it. I I, think, I wish that Windows 8 had support for that. Just say, um, <laughs> yeah, right. I want to I want to put this game in this particular part of my memory. Yeah, is that a thing anymore? I think um, the OS handles that now. <laughs> I don't know. The last time I did that was like, um, I know Joe Joe who we'll be talking to in 20 minutes. Yeah, um, yeah. talked about that like a lot, which is you could with um. Um, the load high uh, command for oh, config yes. this. That's right. Yeah. Oh, where you could put your system device drivers into yes. expanded into... or extended memory instead of conventional memory. That's right. And you could squash stuff into upper memory, and you could even specify the exact memory address that it would go into. That because I, I remember uh, if you used MemMaker, it would, like, for instance, cram the CD-ROM into, like, there was, like, a command called, like, slash m colon zero FFF. Uh, dash zero three three f. Um, so you could actually specify the hex address, uh. which is pretty insane. Oh uh, right, for I, MSC. I never did that. The CD-ROM driver. Yeah, that was, exactly. That was like a big one or a problematic one. I don't remember what the it, it was. It was always a, a huge pain in the ass because it was like forty eight k, and right. I was like, but I need it. Exactly. I need, it. I need that memory. I need to play Crusader. It needs it all. I know. <laughs> Oh, right. Awesome. All right. Hey, thank you very much, Trolls. That was an excellent call. Uh, I appreciate that it provoked such a cool conversation. All right, let's move along then. We have uh, a call from Avi Hayun. Oh, I can't wait. I'm always excited always, to hear from Avi. Always terrific to hear from you, Avi. Here's what he has to say this week. Hi, Square. How are you? It's uh, Avi Hayun here from Israel. I'll keep it short as um, this is my second voicemail because last week I also sent one. So just wanted to say thank you, Chris, for that um, nice uh, Mother's Day uh, cast you did last week. I loved it. Although I prefer also Brian being in the in the show. Still, it was a good one. And it's always good to hear uh, good things about your parents. <laughs> I love your mother. She's, she sounds like a really cool gal. Although I, I pondered this week, what did she think about when she called you a nerd in, in front of that, you know... Nice lady in the in the shop. <laughs> anyway, that nerd story is awesome. I loved it. I just laughed my head out. <laughs> um, you can keep telling it. It's always funny. <laughs> Seriously, I loved it. 
And um, this week you're supposed to talk about uh, puzzle games. You said you'll talk about um, puzzle games like uh, The Incredible Machine and, and the others. Well, when I think about puzzle games, I'm not sure it fits your category, but I, I automatically think about uh, Dr. Brain. Sierra's the Dr. Brain uh, game. Island of Dr. Brain, Castle of Dr. Brain, awesome games. Those are the best um, puzzle games, edutainment I, uh, I ever played. I love them. There's also a great uh, podcast with, from uh, Anatoly, Anatoly um, about edutainment. I strongly suggest uh, hearing that one also. Well, Brian also asked, uh, what's, our, uh, what's my experience with my parents? Were they supportive or not? So my parents uh, weren't, weren't as understanding the whole uh, computer world as uh, Chris's mother and all. But uh, my, my father is, uh, is a farmer. So although he always wanted me to, to go and be a farmer like him, keep the family trade or something, he totally understood and he always appreciated my meddling with computers as if if I'm working with a computer it makes me the smartest guy in the family or something. He always was very proud of me and I'm sure that's uh, some of the, of the reason which uh, really pushed me, pushed me forward with the computers. Even when I did, you know, just bullshit with a computer, we went to surf the BBSs and looked for trash. He always thought I'm doing smart things and gave me full full backup. If I needed a new computer, we weren't rich and I didn't ask for it too much. But when I needed something, he always was there to give it to me. So thank you, my father. Uh, my mother was also supportive, but she was more in the background. Thank you, parents. And uh, thank you, Chris, for bringing up the whole Mother's Day. I think it's a good uh, it's a good thing. Um, I just I also sent you a an article for the MPC magazine, which I loved last last time, and I'll, I'm really holding my breath to see the next volume of it. And also, before I, I finish here, just wanted to say uh, hello to Bram, which is supposed to appear in this uh, in this podcast today. Um, hi, Bram. I heard uh, lots of stories about you. I'm, I'm really, really waiting to hear you yourself. <laughs> so keep it up. I love you guys, really. And uh, bye for now. <laughs> such a nice voicemail. Oh. Thank you, Avi. Oh, man. Avi, I'm melting inside. That's such a I great, know. great voicemail. Oh, he squeezed a lot of good stuff into three and a half minutes there. That was awesome. <laughs> that um, was three and a half minutes? Holy crap. <laughs> Did you... Um, I had I had Castle of Dr. Brain on my list of puzzle games. How about you? Oh, you know what's really sad? Um, I uh, I didn't really get to play the Dr. Brain series. I got um, I kind of got its like you know kind of inbred you know uh, handicapped cousin version of it that came in Quest for <laughs> Glory Four. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> Do you right. Do you remember all of those logic puzzles that were crammed into the effectively Dr. Brain's house in, in town? I remember the character and him having a laboratory, but I don't really remember yeah. what you did there. So you do logic puzzles in Quest for Glory 4? Yeah, I believe so. I, if I remember correctly, oh man, I'm gonna, this is going to be one of those emails where I get like lambasted from our listeners because I totally confuse two games. But I'm pretty sure you interact with this robot um, at at the entrance to Dr. Brain's house in Quest for Glory. I don't even remember the name of the real character in, uh, in Quest for mm. Glory 4. It was not, well, not one of my uh, favorite Quest for Glories, to be honest. Um, mm. But uh, 
I do remember I was just like, hey, that guy looks familiar. And then I, I would flip open my Sierra um, catalog, and inside, of course, there's uh, the island of Dr. Brain. So I, I never quite understood what the island of Dr. Brain was, and by the time I wanted to actually play it, it was already off the shelves. So oh, sure. I, I missed out. Well, yeah, that was definitely on my list. Um, and I played it when it was relatively new. Castle of Dr. Brain was the first one, and Island was the sequel, and I think there were a few okay. more. I don't know if, well, you wouldn't, I don't know if canonical is the right word, but I don't know if they had the same spirit or the same designers. They were essentially, um, they're essentially just a, a collection of puzzles that was sort of wrapped around the framing device of walking through this guy's castle and just kind of proceeding right. through. And so it had all the beautiful, uh, the beautiful Sierra backgrounds and art and stuff like that and charm and some writing. It had some of the UI conventions, like you had an eye cursor and a hand cursor while you were oh. navigating through the house itself. And you could look at these little peripheral things just to get a little bit of color commentary to kind of give you a feel for where you were and to establish okay. this nice wacky sense of humor. And it was kind of a little bit humorous and zany in its presentation, just as the character is in quest for glory four. Um, Why does it have to be zany? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so um it's uh, really just a bunch of like those, you know, IQ Mensa logic sort of puzzles that you've played in a million other games like on paper and in yeah. video games, but um they often had a cute little twist or just kind of a wacky uh presentation to them. And I think my favorite puzzle from the Dr. Brain series was I think it was in the first game where you have to program a robot kind of in like the logo turtle style where you say oh, move you're forward kidding. one square, move forward one square, turn oh, left ninety awesome. degrees, move forward one square. And it got a little bit complicated and I don't remember if you had to actually program it to go it was like a, a telescoping robotic arm that could turn a little bit, so you could you would like program it to go there, ah. and then I think you had to like grab something, kind of like one of those claw games in an arcade, and then tell it to bring it back, and you would have to reverse your instructions to go backwards through the right. maze. Uh, I, that's that's sort of my recollection of it. I really really enjoyed that. I guess because I learned logo in elementary school in like grade three or oh, grade two cool. or something. That was a very happy memory of mine, and I'm sure that's instrumental in my love of computers as well. Uh, so that That's that always funny. brought back good memories. I never really thought about that type of puzzle before, but I can think of it used profitably in two games, exactly the same type of puzzle. Yeah. Um, did you play The Dig? Yeah, I did. Oh, that interface on that freaking puzzle. It's awful. It's like it's it's like a brutal interface, but eventually you do figure it out and mm -hmm. just by just by randomly pressing buttons until it's like, okay, I think this makes it turn left. I think this makes it go forward 10 paces. And it's like, yeah, it's like it's like doing a blindfolded logo script. And for anybody who hasn't played the dig, this is a puzzle where you have to control a remote robot to go pick up um, a malfunctioning crystal and replace the crystal with a new one, I think. Right. Um, and uh, it's a it's a vicious little puzzle, but it it was fair. I remember thinking after I finished it because I didn't have to cheat. I was like, wow, this is actually a pretty fair puzzle. I, I, I did it blindly and it still came out to the right answer. It's fair. Um, it's just obscure. It's like an obvious... It's obscure, yeah. It's a relatively obvious puzzle. Puzzle. You just have to figure out what each of the buttons does and remember what color and what shape button did what. It's just yeah. like kind of needlessly cryptic. Yeah, and the me. other game that uses it is actually Fallout 1. Uh uses the exact mm. same puzzle, um, which is to repair a malfunctioning something or other on uh, at the nuclear power plant in oh geez what's the name of the town i think it's the town with all the the zombies uh, uh i oh i i uh, that's um, i did get to that town ne but I, necropolis I is it necropolis maybe. that has oh, I don't, maybe nuclear I power plant i didn't play it too too much 
Oh, yeah, it has exactly the same puzzle where you, use, you tell this droid to do things in a certain pattern and you have to, you know, uh, and I was just like, I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's just the programmer part of me. But I really like it. Um, yeah, so I'm really, gl- that. really glad, Abby, that you brought up um, the episode of uh, Dust Nostalgia podcast with, uh, with our friend Francisco and right. uh, our good friend Anatoly because that is, yeah, that is a pretty exhaustive episode on the Dr. Brain series. And I, I listened to it really carefully because, uh, again, like I said, I never got to play it. And, uh, yeah, they, they go into unbelievable amounts of detail about the whole series. Yeah, it was a really fun one. We do always recommend you check out that podcast. We'll uh, I'll stick that in our show notes as well, of course. Yes, please. Oh, yeah, and for anyone wondering, I think the episode's on the Sierra Discovery series. Um, it's not specifically about Dr. Brain. They also talk about one of my favorite games that no one talks about, uh, the EcoQuest series, but uh, that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sorry, I'm just typing out our notes here. Okay, I want to move us along so that we can be sure to cover everybody. Uh, Francisco, okay. What was the other thing I was going to link? Oh, yeah, the C64 wiki. All right, next we have, uh, oh, a voicemail from Ryan Barnard. It'll be great to finally hear his voice after uh, he uh, crawled out of his his Dracula crypt while he was sick to, uh, (laughs) (laughs) he summoned the strength to uh, write to us. So uh, take it away, Mr. Barnard. Hey guys, it's Ryan Bernard following up from my emails from last week. I mentioned I had a few QBasic stories and you sounded interested in hearing them. So uh, here they are. I have a couple of them. Uh, I think the first one is when I was in second grade, my teacher wanted to teach us, I think, economy and markets or, or whatever. So what we did is we set up a, like an hour a week. Uh, each student would set up a booth and uh, they make, you know, things to sell. Uh, I think a lot of the girls made, you know, the jewelry and whatnot that they were into, and a lot of the boys had the creepy crawler little toy ovens where you can make bugs and stuff like that. And I had the brilliant idea of, hey, I'm going to make some video games. I know QBasic. So I made this uh, few different games, like a Space Invaders game that was pretty bad, and uh, a Pac-Man game that was so buggy that you couldn't really finish it, but that's okay. And a few text adventure games. I don't remember the stories or anything. I just remember um, lots of if, uh, then, go to and that kind of thing. And uh, my favorite one was Nibbles 2, which I took the original code of Nibbles and then added like this intro video or not video, sorry, uh, like an intro uh, animation to it. Uh, a main menu with high scores, added a bunch of new levels, and a level generator for easy, medium, and hard. It got progressively more challenging. I was really, really proud of it. I spent a long time on it. And so uh, I think we had, like, over winter break or something to kind of do whatever. But whenever the first market came, everyone sets up their little booths, and I set up my booth with, you know, my three-and-a-quarter or three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks. And... uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready, to, ready to buy, or ready for people to buy my stuff, and uh, we we came up with a little uh, currency uh, in the in the classroom. We, they were called a splat. So every student had a certain number of splats. I think you got more by doing good on your homework assignments or whatever. I don't remember how you got more, but um, you go around the room and you man your booth for a while. You go to other people's booths. You spend the splats that people bought 
you know, from your product, and then you can buy other people's things. Uh, apparently, this was back, I think, uh, 1988, so not very many people had a computer with MS-DOS 5 and QBASIC, and had the ability to program, so, uh, no one bought any of my games. I remember just standing there, or sitting there, and, uh, uh, not getting any interest, so I didn't earn any splats, and I couldn't go buy the, the little bugs that the other boys were selling, so, uh, that was disappointing. Uh, another, uh, memory I have, uh, my best friend and, and I, we kind of met in, uh, kindergarten, we're still extremely good friends, and, uh, he and I would play all the Sierra Adventure games, and so we thought, hey, let's make our own. So, we, I remember spending an entire summer with him, uh, with, uh, you know, sketching out drawings of, uh, this game that we were gonna call Sunk, about some haunted shipwrecks, and you were a diver, and I think there was treasure or something, I don't remember why you were there, but, uh, we had all the maps drawn out, all the items in the game, a basic story, you know, this is like third grade or so, so it wasn't anything overly complicated or probably even relatively fun, but, uh, we had fun planning it. He's an artist, and I'm a programmer, so he's, I gave him a little system in QBasic where he can make his pixel art, and then, uh, I could put it on the screen and move it around, and that's kind of as far as we got that, until we kind of realized that we were out of our league. We had no clue what a game engine was at that point, so we were just kind of doing it all manually. Um, after hearing your podcast, I uh, talked to him a couple days ago, and we, we were reminiscing about it, and we're thinking we might, he's got all the notebooks still, I, uh, so we were thinking, well, let's maybe learn AGS and see if there's anything salvageable out of this, uh, no pun intended. Uh, so the last uh, memory I have is how I got QBasic, the full version, uh, I, we had the Prodigy, uh, Pre, it wasn't internet, but, you know, it, was, it had message boards where you can communicate with people all over the country, and, uh, I thought, hey, I'm gonna make a new Sierra game, this is maybe a year later after Sunk, I was like, I know how to program a lot better than I used to back then, which I didn't, but I thought I did, and, um, so I, Gold Rush had just come out from Sierra, and I loved it, and so I was like, I'm gonna make Gold Rush 2, uh, and, and so I started kind of working on, uh, this, uh, intro sequence of basically saying, Gold Rush 2 by Ryan, and having, like, this screen where, um, I had a little character with grass and the sky and a tree, I remember the tree, I, I had a collision detection so you could hit the tree and stop, but I didn't know how to make the guy draw behind it if you were, you know, supposed to be behind it, and that's kind of as far as I got the game. But on Prodigy, I was telling people, oh yeah, I'm making the sequel to Gold Rush, and there was someone that was interested in it, and he asked if he could help me on be on the project, and I said, sure, and then he was like, do you have the full version of Quick Basic? And I said, no. So he sent me a disc with that, and I sent him the disc of how far I had gotten, and, uh, uh, somehow during the co correspondence between the two of us, kind of realized that he worked at Autodesk, you know, a, he was an adult with a job, and is a programmer for, you know, a career. I don't think he realized I was in third grade, or fourth grade, until he got my disc, and he saw how far I had gotten with it, and I remember the very last email I ever got from him was saying something to the lines of, uh, 
uh, I thought this was a little further along than, than it actually is, <laughs> so I don't think we ever talked after that point, but that was okay, because I have my full version of Cubasic, and uh, I went on to play with that for a long time. Uh, one final story, not Cubasic, um, but Trolls' is, uh, uh, heartbreaking Commodore 64 story uh, made me think of this. Um, a few years ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, our, our house has a, a, a pretty a big crawl space, and so we, we put all of our old sentimental stuff in there. Um, I'm sure you know where that's going right away, but... Uh, so all of our stuff is in there, and then uh, I got a call one day when I was at work from my neighbor saying, hey, there's water coming out of your garage, and I'm like, that's weird, the, that would mean my crawl space is flooded, because the garage is above the crawl space, so I, you know, I zip home, and sure enough, water is pouring out from under the garage door, and I open it up, and open up the door to the crawl space, and it's just completely flooded in there, and uh, the fire department ended up coming out to help, and so my wife and I are, are standing on the lawn, fire department's pulling stuff out, and, uh, uh, it was all sentimental stuff, so it wasn't anything valuable to other people, it was valuable to us, but, uh, the, the, the horrible ones were, were, was the Commodore 64 I grew up with came out, and, uh, it had still worked, and it didn't work anymore, and then another C64 I picked up at a garage sale that had worked, uh, came out, it didn't work anymore, uh, boxes and boxes of the old five and a quarter floppy disks, um, you know, of all the old Sierra games, all my Commodore 64 games, all the labels had washed off from the, uh, the water, so it was just, you know, blank disks at that point, and then, uh, then the boxes of the magazines <laughs> came out, and I had years of PC Gamer, um, uh, oh, uh, what was the other ones, uh, Interaction Magazine, uh, 3 to one contact for all the programming stuff in the back, which I loved, and, uh, yeah, oh, and I had a bunch of NES-era Nintendo powers, and they were all waterlogged, and the ink was running, I tried drying them out, the pages were sticking to each other, they were smelly, it just, it, they, they had to get tossed, so, that's my heartbreaking story, it was just, it was awful seeing all that stuff coming out, and realizing all this, uh, all the stuff from my childhood was destroyed, so, um, there's my heartbreaking story, but the, the good side of that is Interaction Magazine, which was my favorite of that series, um, there's a uh, archive online, and you can, um, uh, it's all pdf so you can download the PDFs and, and read through them again, I, I checked on eBay to see if I can get physical copies, but each issue goes for, like, 40 bucks, uh, from what I was seeing, so that's not gonna happen anytime soon for me, but PDFs are gonna be good enough. So anyway, thanks for letting me ramble for so long. Love the podcast. Can't wait to see what you guys are talking about next. Thanks. Thank you so much, Ryan. Oh, man, those were three uh, three woeful tales. Yeah, I would like... <laughs> feel for you, bud. I've been tugging at my heartstrings the whole time. That's awful. I, uh, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> the, worst, oh. the worst part was, in my in my head, all I could say, Ryan, was, was oh, man... I'm so sad your Nimbles 2 didn't sell. Well, why don't we just put it on the next um, 
cover disc for MPC Zine, and then oh. I realized with your third story <laughs> that that disc probably doesn't exist anymore. Oh, this is true. All right, just to, just to make this already wonderfully nerdy uh, series of events even nerdier, um, so last night when I was staying up way, way, way too late and then finally couldn't sleep, and so I was reading my uh, Fellowship of the Ring novel for my class, uh, the place mm-hmm. that I left off was with um, <laughs> was with uh, Strider, aka Aragorn, telling uh, an elven tale to the hobbits, right. and uh, basically Strider uh, prefaces it by saying that oh, the elves have lots of tales, but they're all tales of sorrow. And for some reason, <laughs> this is what Ryan's uh, tales have uh, reminded me of. Ryan's Elvish Commodore and IBM days. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, your your disc drives and your discs are have been sent to the Grey Havens. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, our, forever our will they stay. Yeah. Oh, they were supposed to be immortal, but they found oh, that's it down. awful. So sorry, oh, I but... just like I wanted. I was so excited as soon as she finished the Nibbles two story. I was just like, oh man, that will make the best thing to include. Like 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 an like something we pulled out of like a treasure sunken treasure ship. Uh, forgive the metaphor. Um, <laughs> and it turns out it is actually under 500,000 uh, pounds of water. Right. Uh, oh, that sucks, man. And it actually reminds me of that episode of Simpsons where Martin Prince's mom goes to comic book guy, and she's like, what will you give me for this box of old comic books? And he's like, <laughs> like you know, Spider-Man number one. It's like the episode where, you know, it's like, it's like uh, or it's like Star Wars... Uh, like alternate cut, uh, Chewbacca is Luke's father. That's right. And then, and then she's like, "Whoa, whoa. give me fifty bucks!" Yeah. <laughs> and she's he's like, like okay. "Lady, it's like, lady, he's ripping you off." Those are, it's like, wait, these are valuable. And she's like, "Back to the leaky basement, these go." <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Here's mm-hmm. the, here's a little tip I actually learned from a huge. Um, very few people know about this guy. He's he's an incredible artist. Um, Ben Francisco, this is a guy worth looking up. Um, he did a lot of the uh, kind of poster physical artwork for the Quest for Glory 2 remake. His name is Eric Chang. Eric with a Q. <laughs> kind of a weird spelling. Um, Eric Chang's an unbelievably nice guy. He's an incredible um, uh, artist who introduced me to the Wacom Cintiq uh, many years ago. And thirdly, Eric has one of the world's largest Sierra Adventure collections I've ever seen, um, and he he just lives in this wonderful apartment where all he does is collect Sierra stuff. He said he's been collecting it for twenty years or something crazy. Wow! And um, yeah, the, his his boxes are just piled to the ceiling. And one of the things I I realized was he buys these clear plastic tote containers from IKEA, um, and they stack perfectly on each other. And most importantly, they're all waterproof. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so I one day when I was repackaging my game archive, um, I went to Ikea and I bought 500 or $600 worth of these plastic bins. Um, mm-hmm. They were by far the best investment I've ever made for my game collection because everything's kept very carefully. You can put labels on them. And again, I'm so terrified of having them destroyed by water. They are completely waterproof and the lid seal on top. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, that just made me think of it. Look up Eric Chang if you're interested in uh, old-school Sierra-style artwork. The guy's incredible. Is, does this guy work for uh, Himalaya? Uh, you know what? I think he, what he did was he tended to do contract work for Himalaya and Infamous okay. Adventures. Uh, and and he did the incredible Quest for Glory 2 poster. Um, I'm not sure if anybody will 
has ever seen the Quest for Glory 2 poster. It's fantastic. Uh, the guy's got such a great cartoony... The guy should be working over at Disney or Pixar or something. He's got a great cartoony sense for things. Um, and he also, uh, yeah, he's, he's worked on a bunch of stuff. I don't know if he's still doing games or not. I know he got really involved in the um, um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street community where he was doing a lot of Nightmare on Elm Street conference kind of stuff, uh, artwork. Neat. But, um, yeah, last I, last I talked to Eric, which was like two or three years ago, he was uh, very, very active in that, and he had moved away from games, unfortunately. Cool. Yeah, well, uh, Ryan's story reminded me of uh, my recent uh, disappointment. Um, I uh, have been investigating trying to find five and a quarter inch floppy drives so that I could uh, rip all of my old uh, basic and uh, other old games that my parents have had in their basement for the longest time. Um, I finally went so far as to talk to Jason Scott of the archive.org Wayback Machine uh, Infinite Archive Project, and he said, oh, even though you have like a hundred floppies or so that you're talking about, mail them to me and I'll rip them for you. So I said, said, okay, that's incredible. I'll most certainly take you up on that. And at the same time, I was also researching trying to find one of these floppy drives, which go for no less than like 50 or or $100. It's ridiculous. I just can't find these things anymore. I'm so shocked that they even exist. I know. Well, thank Yeah. Well, unfortunately, what doesn't exist are those five and a quarter inch floppies that my parents had been keeping for 20 yeah. years or something unused. They threw them out like a year ago. So oh, that's too bad. So I had all bad. these awesome basic A demos and games and all this cool stuff on them. So it'll have to live on in my memory. So that's one of my childhood memories that's only going to be told vicariously through story, story and song. So, oh, man, I'm reading too much Lord of the Rings. <laughs> okay. Oh, that just makes me sad. You know, one of the things I did for a, a girlfriend once, uh, this was many years ago, was she had an old Apple II. Um, I think the program was called, oh, Apple Writer, I believe. Um, oh, yeah. It was like a little uh, word processor. And she found this Apple II disc stuffed away in her, her childhood memories. And I, I went out and I spent months finding an Apple IIe with a disk drive so I could actually transfer her 2E stuff uh, off that disc to uh, a regular computer. So for her birthday, I printed off uh, what was on this disc, which turned out to be a bunch of stories she wrote in grade one. Um, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it was, it was amazing that these discs can survive 25 years without losing a single bit of data. Yeah, that's pretty astonishing. Uh, man, right. I, I, need, I, need some, I need a nice story. I need a story that's going to make me laugh. These are making me sad. Well... What we do have on the cusp of occurring is uh, uh, our next uh, full-fledged podcast, which we are going to partake in with Joe Mastrioni any moment now. Although we do have um, one last uh, email to read. Why don't we save it for our podcast with Joe? Okay, that sounds great. All right, so why don't we sign off here? And uh, although uh, you guys will probably get this a day or two before the regular podcast, for us it's going to happen in about two seconds or so. So thanks a lot for listening. Thank you so much, as always, very, very much for writing us and for uh, sending us your voicemails. Sorry that it takes us a, a week or two to get to them sometimes because of my technical ineptitude or uh, poor uh, <laughs> immune system, but uh, we promise to en- we'll endeavor to uh, be more prompt in the future. Yeah, and, and, and you know, your voicemails, your voice, everyone, every one of you that writes into us or talks into us just makes me smile. I, I look forward to it all week. Totally. Love you guys to pieces, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you again real soon uh, in our uh, regular proper podcast. So uh, have a good one, and we'll talk to you uh, ASAP. All right, signing off 16.5. Talk to you in a few minutes. Yay, bye-bye. Bye.